Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. All right, uh, we're starting our new message series called The Future. If you're turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to begin in chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians will be our backdrop for the next uh, six, seven, eight weeks as we go through um, this book and maybe a few other books as well. We want to talk about the future. If you're writing notes, you can take this down today. I can't fully go through this, but I want to talk about our commitment to fullness over fearfulness. We are committed as a church to fullness, the fullness of life over fearfulness. And the second thing that I'm going to try to talk about uh, this morning, soon to be afternoon, it's 11.52. Some of you are thinking about football. Uh, that's okay. So am I. All right. But the Word of God is more powerful. Uh, but I, I, I really want to talk about how we can manage our life from the future, not just from the present. From the future, we are future-oriented people. We're people of the future. We've talked a little bit about this but if we try to manage our life from the present, uh, life gets confusing. But we don't live by the present or by our circumstances. We live by God's future. So we're going to be talking about that. So quickly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 3. Paul is writing to this young church. Uh, some scholars say that he probably spent at least two weeks with them, maybe up to two months. We're just not quite sure as to the timeline. He had to leave because of the threat of persecution. And so he's writing this letter to kind of find out. He's heard good things, but he also wants to be reassured about their faith. And so uh, he begins, or we begin in verse 3, and he writes, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. It's standard for uh, Paul. Uh, faith, hope, love. This is the Christian life. We live by faith, we live by hope, and we live by love. Can I get an amen, church? And so verse 4 says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with, could you say that, full and with full conviction, translation I like uh, probably a little bit better than conviction is assurance, full assurance. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. They are non, a non-anxious presence. I love that. Verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, Eight, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you or echoed uh, from you in Macedonia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols. Our security, in other words, is found in King Jesus, not in, come on, money, not in car, not in status, not in being a fan, not in whatever. Our security is in King Jesus. And you turn to God from all these idols to serve the living and the true God. Verse 10, we end here, and to wait, everyone say wait, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Could you bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for your presence this morning. We thank you that you are, you're here. And I, I thank you for this beautiful September 
soon to be afternoon. Lord, we thank you for blessing your sons and your daughters. Lord, we thank you for doing um, a fresh work in us this morning. So we just say yes to you, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five, tell him how much you love him. Turn to your other neighbor and just say, go game day. Come on, go game day. Love it. Love, love this time of life. I've been thinking about this message for, um, for a while, and I, I realize, I don't know if I'm getting older. I don't know if this is part and parcel of, of aging. I'm so old. You know, I'm 42, but I look 41, right? You know, it's just it's shocking. It's really shocking, guys. Um, but I, man, it, it could be. Maybe, it's in, maybe those who are older and wiser than I can tell me if this is like something you've experienced, but I'm enjoying the simple things. Really enjoy the simple things. I, I love uh, wood smoke, for example, in a fall crisp air. I love, isn't it funny, any campers here, hikers, like you do it all the time like me, okay? Uh, isn't it funny how food around a campfire just tastes so darn good? It's like, and it's like beef jerky, and it just, it's funny. I got a bag of beef jerky, and I was eating it around the campfire, and I thought it was the most amazing thing that I ever tasted. Then I got another bag in town, and it just didn't taste like, you know, uh, what it tastes like in the Frank Church wilderness of no return. I guess it's just all the panic that just creates desire for food. I don't know. But I'm appreciating, like, as I mentioned, wood smoke. Uh, I love dramatic, come on, dramatic mountain landscapes. Um, I love, and I've been thinking about this a lot, I love being alive. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, I tend to be philosophical philosophical, so I, I, I love thinking about thinking. So I just love, how many of you just love going on summer drives? We're kind of into that season, but you open up the windows about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, you got the beautiful sunset. How many of you love living in big sky country? Okay, you got the mint and you got the alfalfa and you're just like, I'm a farmer, so I know that kind of stuff. Some of you don't know. So I'm driving, and I just, I love thinking. I love thinking about, like, contingency. My life is contingent. I love thinking about consciousness. Where does even consciousness come from? I love thinking about metaphysics. I just, I just love it. I love being in, kind of lost in, in my thoughts. My wife doesn't so much care about that, but it's, um, it's something that I, I love. It's simple things. Um, I love the changing of the leaves. I love the color yellow. Like, is that, is that just getting older? Is that just maybe all of us, right? I just love... I love the goodness of God's world, but what I appreciate, I've realized this, my wife and I had the, the, the opportunity to travel a little bit this summer, what I appreciate mostly is a full tank of gas. <laughs> Attorney never give him a high five on that one. That was, we're done. That's all you needed to hear. God is good. Bless you, right? Uh, I don't know what it is. And again, it's a simple thing. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not trying to like just be funny here. I just, I honestly really on a long trip, knowing that there's going to be challenges and Cheeto hands in the back and fights in the back and we're going to have to negotiate traffic on a long trip. There's just nothing that brings contentment like a full tank of gas. I honestly, I'm a better driver I'm a better singer. I actually sing a little bit more in the car. Um, I drop wisdom like it's nothing on my children. I'm like, you should hear me. When I have a full tank of gas, my parenting skills just go to another level. I'm just like, I'm owning their minds with my, my insight. Uh, 
there's just nothing about, everyone say fullness. I don't know what it is, but I love fullness. And I think it's a picture of how God has created us. Now, I, I'm not going to define fullness today. Over the next few weeks in this message series, we will. But there's, there's something about fullness that God has, a, a longing for fullness that God has wired into us. Um, not only do I love fullness, one thing that I do not like at all, and maybe you've experienced this um, before, I, I just don't like being rushed. I don't like waking up late, uh, especially on a big day. There's important places to go, and you have important meetings, and uh, you got things to do. You got to drop off the kids at school. You got to get your Starbucks, right? You got to get your ice quad, espresso with a little bit of cream and one raw sugar. If you've never had it, take it or get it, and it will change your life. Um, but I just don't like being rushed, and I specifically don't like being rushed and then getting into my car, turning on the car, and the dashboard lights up, and you have that um, empty icon that lights up as well. Having an empty tank when you have so much to do is a frustrating experience. Feeling empty, feeling empty, and, and this is existential, feeling empty when you have to parent, when you have to lead, when you have to pastor, when you have to be courageous, when you have to be on mission, when you got to welcome the stranger, when you got to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, when you got to do the hard things and you don't want to do it, when your feels are off or your mapping of the world is just off, when you feel empty, it's a frustrating, at the least, experience. For some, it's a, it's a, it's a situation of despair. In fact, uh, my mentor about 15, 20 years ago in my 20s, he came to me and he said, Chris, do you know what my greatest fear is? Um, and I thought he would say like public speaking. Obviously, it wasn't public speaking. I thought he might say something like death, and it wasn't death. I thought he might say something like great white sharks. It wasn't great white sharks. It wasn't anything like that. He goes, my greatest fear is that when I parent and when I lead, he leads a really big church. When I lead, I lead from a place of emptiness. That is my greatest fear fear when I have nothing to give. It's my fear as well, but the good news is we can choose the fullness of life over fearfulness. You see, we find in verse 5, and we read this in 1 Thessalonians, the context of the situation is one fraught with anxiety and persecution and suffering and difficult circumstances. And Paul writes um, it, as a way to, to show us in microcosm what the Christian story is all about. Usually when we think of the Christian story, we think of like subtraction. I got to get rid of this. I got to get rid of that. I got I to stop doing this. I can't like, I got to do this and this and this. And yes, there are things that we have to let go. Can I get any man to that when it comes to following Jesus? And yes, we have to pick up our cross and we have to deny ourselves. But Christianity at its heart is not a subtraction story. It's a story of abundance and fullness. And what Paul says, hey guys, you know your experience. You're going through a lot right now, but this has been your experience with the gospel or the good news. It came not in scarcity or with with, with scarcity. It came in power and in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is your helper. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you every single day. The Holy Spirit is God's presence with you. Uh, God has not left you. He's not left you bereft. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, you might not feel that 
that's true. You might be going through a difficult situation this morning, and that's like, ah, I don't know if God's presence is, is with me. But whether we feel like it or not, it's the truth of the good news is that the word of God comes to us, and our lives are filled with power, and our lives are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love this. And with full. Everyone say full. Full assurance. You look at the Greek grammar, that word full, we could translate it in the English as fulsome. Fulsome essentially uh, evokes the idea of generous to, um, in, uh, to an extent. It has the idea of copiousness. It, it talks about being filled to um, the fullness. I know it's a little bit like redundant, but to be full or to have the fulsome life, Paul is saying, is what the Christian story is all about. We've talked about this long, um, over the last probably six, seven years. We go to Mark chapter 6. We go to John chapter um, 6 as well. Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, what we might call like not enough or scarcity. And what does he do? He transforms the bread and the fish, the food. We call it food, right? And he feeds fifteen to 20,000 people. Uh, not only are they filled to the full, the text tells us, but there are 12 baskets full of leftovers. This is like Thanksgiving par excellence right? You're getting out the stretchy pants. Like no one's scrimping in the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus is characterized by fullness and abundance and life. Jesus made it very clear. I come not to take away your life. I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. I come to give you the fullness of life, the fullness of forgiveness, the fullness of peace, the fullness of hope, the fullness of putting your life back together. That is the promise that Jesus gives us. And we Find that in Mark chapter 6 and John chapter 6. And then we fast forward a little bit to the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, and we see the city, and the, uh, this is the new Jerusalem. It's the garden city. Jerusalem has descended. New heavens and new earth have come together. It's a beautiful picture of our future. The gates are wide open, and there's just plenty that is flowing out of this new city. You have trees that are used for the healing of the nations. You have a river that's flowing out of this garden city. The point is that God's future world and God's present world, or the kingdom of Jesus, is defined by fullness, not by lack. Isaiah 55, beautiful, it's beautifully written. Uh, it corresponds with Revelation 21 and 22, but Isaiah has a picture of the future, kind of this messianic banquet look, and he writes this, and many of you are familiar with this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money or price. This is the heart of the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus is a cornucopia of fullness and life and peace and contentment. Can I get an amen? However, the older I get, the more I realize that this fullness, this is where this is our starting point. We because we are in King Jesus, we're given the gift of fullness. We can't technique our way into fullness. We can't even practice our way into fullness. We can't earn our way into fullness. We can't do anything to get fullness. Fullness is a gift that Jesus offers all of us. That's our starting point. That's our middle point. That's our end point. It, it, it's circumambient. It engulfs our life. Fullness engulfs everything about us. Unfortunately, fullness leaks. And the reason why it leaks is because we allow it to leak. We choose, in other words, we choose to be fearful. 
And when we choose to be fearful, uh, it causes fullness to leak in our lives. And I'm realizing the older I get, and and bringing this full circle, uh, the more important it is that every single day that we have to make a choice to choose fullness and what Jesus says about our life and what we find in Scripture over being afraid. Because it's fear that will steal the fullness of life that Jesus has offered all of us. Like here, here we, I'll call it, we live in a cross-pressured world. We're, like we're onslaughted by all these different things that forces or stuff that just acts upon us. And if we don't make a choice every single day to choose the fullness of God, irrespective of how we feel, Irrespective of what we're going through, yeah, you might feel weak. Yeah, you might feel empty. But if you confess and you start singing and you open up scripture and you start declaring and confessing what Jesus has said over you, you start worshiping and studying. And like you wake up in the morning and maybe your feels are off or maybe you're going through a really rough season, but you make a decision. I am not going to focus on my fear. I'm going to focus on what Jesus has promised in his word. And you turn on some worship music. Maybe you like Bethel, or maybe you like Hillsong, or maybe you like Jesus culture, or maybe you like old hymns, or maybe you like classical music, whatever your thing is, you just open up your heart to Jesus and you dwell on his goodness. As you do that, you will enter into the fullness of God. And ultimately, you're making a choice that I will not let my life be defined and characterized by fear. Here's the thing. The fullness of life that Jesus offers us is a gift, but it doesn't happen automatically. Some of you, you have received the most wonderful gift in Jesus, and yet you don't access it every single day. You've been given life and peace and contentment and grace, and yet you're choosing to allow your life to be shaped by your circumstances and what you see in the present. In fact, many of us feel like, and this is part of our culture, the culture that we live in, we we feel like when we have a fear thought that passes through our mind, that somehow that makes us afraid. Just because you feel fear doesn't mean you're afraid. In other words, some people, and I've talked to quite a few young people, it's like they'll get a weird thought that'll come, that passes through their mind, and they automatically assume, well, because I thought it, that must be who I am, that somehow that's like, that's my identity, that's kind of, I guess that's, you know, who I am. Or I have a desire, that must be who I am, I, I feel this way, so that must be somehow true to my, like, who I am as, as a human. And that's just all, that, that, that's the culture. The culture is elevated desire and feelings and what we think as a way to define us. And yet when we come to the scripture, what defines us is not our feelings, is not how we think even, is not even our desires or our poles or the thing that pushes us or motivates us. What defines us is God's fullness. You are not a product of how you feel, what you desire, or what you even think on. And I believe in the power of thinking. We talked about it last week. What you think on is inextricably inextricably connected to your feelings and to your actions and your behaviors. But more fundamental, you are a product of what you focus on. So every single day, I have a choice, because I... 
It's funny how people think about how people think about pastors. Like we wake up and somehow we just like we're totally like everything is like we are just on it every single day. Isn't it funny? Like this morning I woke up and I gotta be quite honest with you, I wasn't feeling well at all. And based on my feels, I was not on my A game, right? And so I had to make a decision because a lot of thoughts just kind of passed through my mind, okay? And I had to I had to choose, am I going to dwell? on these thoughts that are passing through my mind that I know does not reflect what God says about me. In fact, they're in contradistinction to God's word and promise about fullness. I can choose to dwell and to focus on what God has not said about me, or I can make a decision every single day. To think about how God thinks about me. And that's the secret to entering into fullness. We must choose fullness if we want to be a non-anxious presence in this world over fearfulness. If you live by fearfulness, you can never get into God's mission. You can never have the courage to do what God's called you to do. We cannot love our enemies. We cannot practice hospitality. We cannot welcome the stranger. We cannot be who God's called us to be if we choose to dwell on our And this is important because despair is in the air. It's funny, this summer, uh, you get a sense that the institutions in the Western world are like falling. It's like, it's like Chicken Little, right? Or the, like the sky is like falling or whatever. I mean, I'm trying to describe a lot. The great American philosopher and Dumb and Dumber, like ch- uh, pets' heads are falling off, right? That's kind of what it feels like, right? Come on, the political landscape is fraught with just uh, low-grade anxiety. Like anxiety's in fact, escalating, there's rapid change, and that's led to this quick fix mentality. According to one psychologist, he talks about this quick fix where we only focus on um, symptom relief and not fundamental change. We're so afraid, we just need a quick fix rather than um, being committed to the, the long process of God changing our lives. We live our lives in fear. And I was watching a little TV this summer, and it was amazing. It was uh, Wells Fargo, help me out here, Facebook, and Uber, and uh, Google, four, four major companies, four major institutions in our West, that shape, um, really, Western civilization in many ways, came out with their public mea culpas. They're repenting for all the stuff that they did. And I got this weird sense that, man, if I didn't have Jesus, I don't know where my security would be. Secularization is leading us to this radical sense of disillusionment. Well, if we can't trust in the Republicans, or we can't trust in the Democrats, or we can't trust in people, or we can't trust in our institutions, if we can't trust in laissez-faire economics, or if we can't trust in our republic, we can't trust in Apple, we can't trust in even pastors, who are we going to trust in? Just so you know, maybe you feel it, it's in the air. In fact, one psychologist says it's like, It's like the culture is a room filled with toxic gas and any small um, light will cause this dramatic spark in the atmosphere and you sense that, you see that. People are afraid, let's call it apocalyptic fear. People don't know what to do with fear and so we have to make a decision today as we move into the midterm elections, as we move into the greatest season the church will ever experience as we move into a brand new work of God 
in our city and in our country, we have to be committed. Not to fearfulness, but to fullness. So how do you do that, though? How do you negotiate, like, the, the, the issues of parenting and being in this world and dealing with so much from sickness and loss and suffering and pain? How do we live into faith? And Paul, as I close, made it very clear in verse 10. This is how you do it. You cannot manage, if you want to be committed to fullness over fearfulness, you cannot manage your life from the present. You have to manage your life from the future. You've got to be future-oriented. In fact, in verse 10, if I could read this one more time, Paul, Paul's writing to a church in persecution. I'm sure they're feeling anxiety and fear. He reminds them how the gospel came, came to them. And then in verse 10, he says, this is what I want you to do. No one likes to do this. He says, I want you to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. And it's the return of Jesus who will deliver us from the wrath to come. In fact, what Paul does is, is, okay, this is how you manage your present. This is how you change or alter the structure of your reality. You have to see God's future. It's the return, it's the re, and I'm going to talk about this really quick. It's the return of Jesus that alters how we behave and how we live right now in the present. In fact, it's the fact, it's a bold statement, I get it, but the fact that Jesus' word is the last word is what shapes how we parent, how we do work, how we breathe, how we live, how we serve, how we handle pain and suffering and good times and bad times and blessing and difficult times and our enemies, how we live right now. How shall we live is predicated on what we see in the future. Uh, for example, this summer, uh, I, I, my wife and I, we took our kids over to my parents' house. It was game two. Cleveland's playing um, Golden State. My mom loves Golden State. Uh, she loves Steph Curry more than she loves me. It's weird. It's weird, weird, weird. So they came a little bit late, but they had their room, right? Got the lazy boy and the little sofa. And so we have, thankfully, DVR. How many of you enjoy DVR, right? So they came a little bit late. They were in the first quarter, but Mikel and I, we were in the other room, and I was probably more at the end of the third quarter. Well, my mom, she just has to know the future. So I came from the future into her room, and she's like, She's restless. It was, it, was a difficult, you know, it was a difficult quarter. She's a little bit concerned. She can't handle another loss. Um, the Golden State has to win it, right, for her. And so she's a little bit anxious. And so she looked up to me, and she goes, Chris, I know you're kind of at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Can you tell me what happens? And I looked at Dad, and Dad shook his head, you know. <laughs> he just wants to be in the present. And so I took my mom out, and I told her, uh, what was happening and how Golden State was pulling away and she went back in just free as a little birdie. <laughs> Propped up her feet, just chilling. 
smile on her face, right, drinking Diet Coke or whatever she drank. It was water or something. My dad, on the other hand, he's still full of tension, like trying to figure things out. And he's like, Con, don't tell me. He's not even looking at my mom's face. But it was amazing how just, just her capacity or like me just coming and telling her, let me just keep it simple, telling her what the future looked like, it helped her mitigate Helped her negotiate the fear and the anxiety because she knew the outcome. Some of you, you're trying to manage your life from the present and you can't do it. You can't see. You can't see. And so some of you are left with despair and disappointment and you don't know what to do. And you're living on empty. And you're trying to be who God's called you to be by living on empty, by not knowing or getting a clear or living your life from a clear-eyed vision that God has for you. In fact, a Harvard professor, uh, his name Fritz Rothelsberger, amazing name. He said this, he's an organizational theorist. He said, most people think of the future as the ends and the present as the means. Whereas in fact, he says that's a myth, the present is the ends and the future the means. In other words, he's saying, usually we think of, we got to do something in the present and that will lead us to our future. So I got to get this job, I got to do this thing, and then that's going to help me uh, shape what I want to be in the future. And he goes, that's wrong. You first need to get a view of what your future is like, a preferred future in his word, or a definite sense of vision, and that will inform and alter how people think and how they feel and even how they behave in the present. You need, a, you need to be a future-oriented person. You need to get a vision of what God has for you. Here's the good news. God's already in your future. And he already knows how he's going to direct the script of your life. What we just need to do, we just need to open up our life to his vision for us. And it's the vision of God that frames our life. It keeps us from making bad decisions. It keeps us from going to the left and going to the right. It keeps us focused. Some of you don't know where you're going because you don't have a sense of God's future. In fact, you're almost like in the Frank Church, wilderness of no return without a map. And at one point, I was with, uh, I think it was Goose and I, we got separated from the hikers and because we were the most athletic and we could do it. And um, we, didn't we realized we didn't have a map. And uh, I didn't tell Goose this, but I had about like a two-minute like panic moment. Like, man, this wilderness is pretty big. And if we can't find our way, then um, it's going to be, I don't know what's going to happen, right? And so thankfully we found our party, but I think a lot of people uh, feel that way. They don't have a map. They don't know where God is directing them, and that's fine. There's no judgment here. There are a lot of reasons for that we're going to get into today. Um, but if they just simply open their life to God's future, it changes everything. In fact, Kennedy um, made a bold declaration. We call it the moonwalk vision, right? Uh, we had no, we started from scratch. We had no space program. Kennedy just made a decision. We're going to, and it's kind of competitive with the Russians. We're just going to go to the moon. Some of you don't think that actually happened. Weird. Anyways, let's move on. Idahoans. Anyways, Lord have mercy. Um, but we put a man on the moon, right? And I can't remember when it was in the 60s or 70s. Or God help me. I, anyways, let's move on. And, uh, but we didn't have a space program. 
but that vision was a compelling future. And what it did, it created desire and excitement and curiosity and um, a quest for knowledge. That's the power of knowing or seeing the future. Martin Luther King, same thing. I have a dream. His speech fundamentally changed the structure of the South. Just by simply giving us a look at what our future was, it changed the social, political structure of his day. This is how the future works. Let me just say this. The New Testament is bold about the future. Unfortunately, as Christians, we'll talk more about this over the next few weeks, uh, when it comes to the future, we think of it in a cartoonish way. We think of it in an exaggerated way. We think of the book of Revelation as apocalyptic lit that just none of us can figure out and having bizarre interpretations of the future. We think of maybe dragons and we think of beasts and we think of all these symbols and we don't want to think about the vision. Unfortunately, that's um, a twisting of New Testament eschatology. I'm gonna be really honest with you today. This is fancy talk, but as Christians, my greatest concern is that we've boulderized eschatology, meaning we've removed future talk from what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian without talking about eschatology. And eschatology is all about the future. Eschatology is that Jesus has a story that he has already written for us, for our churches, for our cities, for our families, for our world, for our nation, and he's moving his story to its intended goal. That's eschatology. Unfortunately, because I think many pastors have overreacted to some of the weird interpretations of eschatology, we no longer talk about it. We can no longer omit future talk when it comes to talking about being a Christian. I'm calling it the great omission. I think the reason why, if, if we are impoverished as a church, it is precisely because we do not know or have clarity about where Jesus is taking us. And Jesus is taking us to new heavens and new earth. I'm not going to talk at length about this today. But Jesus is leaving, leading us to a new Jerusalem where the healing of the nations will take place, where Jesus will wipe every tear, where God will remove and finally deal with evil and its disfiguring effects on creation. Jesus is not leading us into unmitigated disaster of creation. Jesus is not leading us into a cosmic dumpster fire. Jesus is not leading us into this apocalyptic or dystopian future world where everybody is destroying each other. Jesus is leading us into a world that is marked out by love and grace and mercy and truth and good work because Jesus will have the last word. And we'll talk about this over the next few weeks. So how do we end? Well, Paul says, okay, this is how you handle anxiety and this is how you handle waiting seasons. You gotta remember, Jesus will return one day. And he will judge the living and the dead. This is how we fundamentally alter our behavior. For example, I was five years old. We were living in Portland. And my dad, he, uh, he coached college ba basketball. He was amazing. Coached college basketball. Elder at a mega church. Was a principal. Was a teacher. Was a youth pastor. All at the same time. It was just crazy. So... Um, sometimes he wouldn't come home until like six or seven at night and two things would always happen. I loved, I always had this anticipation at the age of five for my dad coming home. 
for one reason. I just wanted to wrestle him. I wanted to punch him. I wanted to wrestle. It's funny, my boys do the same thing to me, and it hurts so stinking bad. <laughs> Guys, can I admit I'm a little bit intimidated by my sons? Okay. But I love that anticipation. I just wanted, I wanted my dad to come back because my dad was full of love. But it also worked in a negative way. When I was acting up, my mom would always say this. Moms, I'm sure you say this, or dads, whatever. Um, hey, just wait till dad comes home. And I knew dad would come home and put things to rights. And it would hurt. Mostly put my sisters to rights. But every now and then put me to rights. And it changed how I lived in the present. How I talked to my mom. How I talked to my sisters. I anticipated the return of my father. What Paul is saying, you need to do the same thing. This world is not going anywhere. That's not the story. This world is not going in circles. Time is not a circle where we just we do something and then we repeat it. We do it and we repeat it. It's just this pagan vision of time and it's meaninglessness and hey, what's gonna happen is gonna happen and this laissez-faire attitude to uh, God's world. That is not biblical. God is moving our world to his preferred future. It's a new heavens and a new world and a new earth, and Jesus will return, and he will judge the living and the dead, and he will put this world to rights, and he will heal every heart who turns to him, and he will change the fundamental structure of creation and relationships, and even how we live our lives. Every aspect of his creation will be fundamentally healed. That's the big F future. So if God's going to do that, think about what he's going to do for you and the future that he has for you that plays a part to the big future that he has for creation itself. God is not going to leave you. God's not going to abandon you. He's going to complete what he started in you. So what do we need to do? We need to make a decision to choose in this next season to choose fullness over fearfulness. And we must manage our life, not from the present, but from God's future world. He knows the end. He's in the future right now. He has a great plan for your life. He's going to work it out. Some of you need to hear me this morning. Can I preach? He's going to work out. Some of you are going through a really difficult season. I know Kel said it this morning, but he got, he has you. Isaiah 41 says, I've chosen you. You don't have to be afraid for one moment because I'm upholding you in my righteous right hand. I love that. God, think about this. God is upholding you in his righteous right hand. Things might not make sense. Your heart might be filled with disillusionment. Maybe you've tried as you've prayed for your lost loved ones. Or maybe you're going through a season of suffering and sickness. God's word will always be the last word. And he works out not just some things, but all things for his goodness and for his glory. Can you say amen, church? Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.